So it's about a shift of values and it's not something that happens with just one small little statement, I'm now gonna do it. It takes a series of neuroplastically altering glial cell changing uh, brain responses in the brain to get you to see things from a new perspective and take actions accordingly. Welcome, everybody. This is For the Love of Money, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success by sharing the tools, tips, and stories of those who have already made it. My name is Chris Harder, and each week I will bring you incredible guests in order to prove that when good people make good money, they do great things. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another life-changing and inspiring episode of For the Love of Money. And yes, I mean it when I say life-changing and inspiring episode because we are about to sit down with the legendary Dr. John Demartini. Now, he obviously needs no introduction, but yes, I do mean that Dr. Demartini that is the world-renowned specialist in human behavior and quite honestly is considered one of the world's leading authorities in leadership, entrepreneurship, and financial matters. And so we're in for a real treat today. Now, when I talk about an individual that creates so much success in others, that is always my goal for you. I know you've got big dreams. I know you've got great business ideas and I know you want to make them happen and I'm gonna help make them happen with you. I'm either gonna do it in the form of one-on-one coaching for the most high-end entrepreneurs out there or we're gonna sit down where my team becomes your team and have a VIP day where we pull your business apart and put it back together with more revenue and you leave with a list of exact next actions, who's gonna do them and when you're going to do them by. So listen, if you wanna check out the one-on-one coaching and apply for it, simply go to fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash coaching. Again, that's fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash coaching. Or if you wanna check out one of our VIP days and apply for that, go to fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash VIP. Again, that is fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash VIP. Whether it's in coaching or whether it is my in my team becoming your team and us rolling up our sleeves of work on your business, I can't wait to move your business closer to your dreams. Now, it's a dream to sit down with Dr. John D. Martini, the world-renowned specialist in human behavior, uh, the gentleman that everybody knows is one of the leading authorities on what makes us do what we do, think how we think, and what determines if we're going to be successful or not. So it's a blessing to have him on the show today. Now get this, he has studied over 30,000 books over the last 40 years. Let that sink in a minute. He has read and studied over 30,000 books over the last 40 years, and he's authored more than 40 books of his own on a wide range of topics, such as corporate and financial empowerment, self-development, social transformation, entrepreneurship. So he is one of the leading authorities on everything we talk about on this show. I know you've probably already seen him on Larry King Live and all over TV, and of course, he regularly, regularly contributes to Oprah Magazine. So when I say that you're in for a mind-blowing and life-changing treat right now, I actually mean it. We answer the question of what makes a successful entrepreneur versus one who fails? What are the behaviors that we are not even aware of that determine this? We go in-depth on what dictates your financial future. And trust me, you really want to know the answer to this one because it's going to change your life. And in one show, quite honestly, he reframes how I think about and define generosity. So listen, get ready, focus in, because this episode is about to change your life. 
Dr. Demartini, it is a honor to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great and thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure and my privilege. So I start my show out with a rapid fire because it's a really fun way to help my listeners get to know you in a hurry. And then if something really good comes up that we want to circle back around on and do a deep dive on, we'll do that. Sound good? Sounds like a smart uh, procedure. (laughs) All right. So we're going to start real easy. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Well, I was the first 12 years of my life was Houston, Texas. Uh, From 12, 13, I lived in Richmond, Texas. 14, I hitchhiked to California and Mexico, and I started traveling. 15, I moved it to Hawaii. Uh, Till 18, 18, I eventually came back to Texas to start school. And um, then I'm now a world traveler starting from a young age, from a teenage. Do you have a place you call home now? Well, the universe is my playground. The world is my home. Every country is a room in the house. Every city is a platform I get to share my heart and soul. My residence is actually a ship called the world. Ah, I love it. What a privileged life. Yeah, I, I, I sold all 11 of my homes. And so I now live on the ship full time. Well, not full time. I'm traveling most of the time in hotels, but that's my residence, the ship called the world. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, okay, what's your favorite quote? Favorite quote? Well, I probably I can think of thousands. The, the, the magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you'll impose on yourself. So give yourself permission to be yourself and give yourself permission to do something extraordinary with your life. Oh, that is so powerful. What is one of your superpowers? I think the area of my core competence is the breadth and depth of the research that I've been doing for the last 46 years on maximizing human awareness and potential and sharing those and traveling the world and sharing that uh, in my presentations. That's my core competence. Well, we are definitely going to tap into that expertise that you have. A few more rapid fire here. What is one of your all-time favorite books? Syntopican Volumes 1 and 2 by Mortimer Adler, put, put out by the Britannica series, is two of the best books probably any human being will ever read. Amazing. I have not read them. I will definitely check those out. What is one thing you're challenged by right now? Well, I've been asked to do many things and I get bombarded by opportunities and having to prioritize those and make sure I keep to the highest priorities is is a challenge because I've, I've been asked by five organizations to do a Netflix series, a, a television movie series. Lots of things are going on and, and I have to say no to some of them. I just my schedule and other priorities are still high. So challenging of keeping the priorities and keeping to the highest priority, which is what I attempt to do every day. I feel like that's what I've been been challenged with and uh, trying to exercise that muscle this year as well. So what is one of your all-time favorite accomplishments thus far? Um, I think the Demartini method, the method that I use to help uh, transform people's lives, which is being studied at Keio University in Tokyo and has helped, I don't know, millions of people's lives. I think that's my biggest contribution and the thing that I'm inspired by I've been able to develop the most. I've been working on it since I was 18 and I'm 65 almost. Wow, congratulations. Two more here. What is something generous you've recently done? Well, I'm I'm uh, authorized to do a contribution with a lovely lady who's worked with seven presidents in Africa with 50,000 kids. That's something that's pretty inspiring that I'm getting ready to do. And just being able to travel the world and to share on a daily basis and do, you know, an average of two or three interviews a day at least. Um, to to bring my message out to the world. That's that's my my contribution, trying to bring knowledge to people. Remarkable. And last but not least, what are you grateful for today? Well, I had the opportunity to do, as I said, these podcast seminars, live 
presentations. Uh, I, I, I have a gratitude journal that I fill out every day of the things that I get to do. That's 4,000, nearly 700 pages. And so getting to do what I love to do every day and structure my life the way I have has been very inspiring to me. And that's the thing I'm grateful for the most. Wow. Being able to structure my life, doing what I love doing, making a difference. Wow, remarkable. Okay, so let's dig a little bit deeper into the interview now. And I want to start by taking you back to the moment when you were 17 years old and you had a life changing experience that changed the way, the course of your life and really lends itself to how you contribute today. Would you mind telling us that story? Well, I was uh, living on the North shore of Oahu in Hawaii. I was a long haired hippie surfer. <laughs> I was living in a tent in a jungle near Haleva Point, near Haleva. I was expanding my consciousness through natural organic means there in those days. That's a <laughs> funny thing to say. And I ended up with strychnine cyanide poisoning. And I nearly died. Uh, it was gradually accumulating and I wasn't paying attention to it because I thought it was just a potassium imbalance because I was surfing 11 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And um, it accumulated and I it stopped my diaphragm and I almost died. And luckily a lady found me uh, I was unconscious for three days. And luckily a lady found me in my tent. And I'd, I think if it wasn't for her finding me, I wouldn't be here. And that led me to a little health food store to get some nutrients in me to recover and led me to a yoga class where I met Paul Bragg. And Paul Bragg in a presentation in one hour with one message that one night at one man um, made me I, I could swear he was talking to me that night. And as a first time in my life, I actually thought that maybe I could someday be intelligent. I was good in surfing and good in sport, but I never was able to read a book. I didn't read my first book till I was 18. I had learning problems, speech problems. Um, I, I just couldn't get meaning with dyslexia. I just couldn't do it. And I dropped out of school and I was a street kid. So that night with his message, was the day I, I had a vision of traveling the world and teaching, which is the most inspiring thing I get to do in my life, to be able to live what I had set out to do on a daily basis. So that was that one night he, he shifted the trajectory of my life by one presentation. And I've had a dream to do the same as I travel the world, try to give people that much of an impact when I speak. Wow, I can imagine you've now done that for thousands, if not millions of people yourself. So it's amazing the uh, domino effect or the butterfly effect that can happen well, with one person's we, between, impact. Between movies, TV, radio, newspapers, magazines, podcasts, everything, we've reached 5.2 billion people now. Oh, wow, that's, that's remarkable. That's remarkable. Just out of curiosity, the woman that found you when you were um, unconscious for three days, do you keep in contact with her today? Does she know the impact that she had in your life? I wish I could. Um, she gave me a, a walk to the health food store and I saw her probably over the next couple months, a few times. And then she went back to the States and I didn't see her again. I've never seen her. I couldn't tell you how to get in touch with her. I wish I had, but she lived back farther into the jungle in a little house back in the jungle. And um, I, I wish I could tell her thanks, but I don't. I have to say it non-locally in some sort of quantum entangled way. Wow. Well, we're all grateful for her because all of our lives are better as a result of her finding you. So here you are today, you've studied human behavior for over 40 years and you've studied over 30,000 books as well, which by the way, I just have to point out for somebody who did not start reading until they were 18 
And I think I just heard you say that you have dyslexia or had dyslexia as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I definitely had dyslexia. I can say that I've uncovered what is underlying part of that. And I've definitely done things uh, developing my methodology to help transcend that. And um, the the symptoms have subsided uh, significantly where you would hardly even know today. But uh, even 20, 30 years ago, if you look at my audio cassettes, 30, 35 years ago, you can still see that my speech concerns and my wording. And if I tried to read out loud, you could see it. A lot of that is all smoothed away today because I figured out what it is that's initiating that and how to dissolve that. Wow, that's remarkable. So the result is you've read over 30,000 books and all centered around human behavior. So I'm curious, at the core, what determines our actions and our behavior? Well, each individual uh, at any one moment, regardless of gender or, or culture or age, has a set of priorities, a set of values, things that are most to least important in their life that dis- to impact their perceptions, decisions, and actions and impact their life. I always say the hierarchy of one's values dictates one's destiny. And tell me what your values are and I'll tell you where you're headed. So that is the cornerstone. And you probably noticed that if you've seen any of my YouTubes, every talk I do revolves around value structure. So I wrote a book called The Values Factor for that. And in every book that I've done and every seminar I've done, values are gonna come up because that is the cornerstone of maximizing human awareness and potential. How do we as an individual determine what our values are? Well, 40 something years ago, I used to just ask people and I I assumed and believed what they would say. But after doing it for so long, I realized that most people are oblivious to what they really value. They have delusions and fantasies and expectations that are really unrealistic. So I had to come up with a more objective way of doing that. And I found 13 objective questionnaire systems that allow that to happen. And it's on my website, it's complimentary for people if they would like to do that, drdmartini.com. But what it is, is how do you fill your space? Because things that are important to you, you keep in your space and you keep close to you and things that aren't, you toss, you get rid of it, push away. How do you spend your time? You make time, find time, spend time on things that are really important to you. And you don't make time and run out of time for things that aren't. What energizes? You have more energy at the end of the day when you're doing things high on your values and you're drained if you're doing things low. What is you spend your money on? You find money, you spend money, make money for things that are valuable to you and you don't wanna spend money on things that don't. What is it you're most organized in your area of your highest values? You bring order to your life and whatever's low in your values, you never get around to wanting to put focus on and there's a lot of chaos there. What is it you're disciplined, reliable and focused on? That tells you what you value most. What do you think about, visualize and affirm to yourself internally about how you would love your life to be that shows evidence of coming true. And the key is evidence of coming true. There's no evidence, it's fantasy. And then what do you converse with other people about most in external dialogues? What do you want to bring the conversation to most frequently? Because people want to talk about what they value. Then what inspires you and brings a tear of inspiration to your eyes when you think about it and focus on it and work on it? And then what is it that's the highest priority goals that are most consistent, persistent, you focus on that are showing evidence of manifesting and coming true? And the last one is what do you love studying about, reading about, listening to, Uh, watching YouTube videos about what's the topic that's most intriguing spontaneously that you love learning about. If you answer three answers to each of those and identify those three answers and summarize them, you'll see repeated patterns. And the ones that show up most frequent, second most frequent, third most frequent are the hierarchy of your values. 
And finding what that is and structuring your life around that can make a difference of mediocrity or extraordinary lifestyles. This is interesting. I'm actually going to go take that, uh, do that exercise, take that test, because I was trying to rapidly answer in my head the questions as you were asking them. And I realized that if somebody were to stop me on the street and ask me my, what my values were, they probably wouldn't necessarily align what I respond verbally to some of the actions that I take, the things I make time for, the things I don't make time for, et cetera. So what a fascinating way for us to actually figure out what our true core values are, because then that's going to determine all of our behaviors. Is that correct? Exactly. And, you know, I, I ask people, I've asked, I don't know, millions of people, uh, how many would like to be financially independent? And uh, every hand goes up, just about 99 to 100% of the hands go up around the world in every culture I've been in. I've been in 150 countries. And what's interesting is people put their hands up and say, I want to do it. But their life doesn't demonstrate financial independence. 100% to 99% put their hands up, less than 1% obtain it. So there's a vast difference between what people think they want and what their life demonstrates. That's why I had to put an objective system together because people lie to themselves. And then they think they're sabotaging. They think they can't stay focused. They think there's something wrong with them. But they're living congruently with their own values without even knowing it. But they have a delusion and fantasy about what they expect themselves to do. And so finding out what it is, because most people, when they say they want to be financially independent, the real truth is they want to spend money on consumable items that depreciate in value that actually undermine their financial independence. And they don't want to have the patience and long-term vision to buy assets that actually grow in wealth. And as a result of it, they self-depreciate and they end up having difficulties getting ahead financially because they don't buy assets. And their life demonstrates that. And they want consumables for immediate gratification, which cost them their financial freedom. This is interesting. So you're saying, and I'm just going to use an example. Somebody may say, well, I value wealth. I want to become wealthy. But then the way they demonstrate by spending their money, they probably really value significance or being seen or something else other than wealth. They, they value whatever that brings them that's immediate gratifying. And immediate gratification costs wealth building and long-term vision pays. So I, I, I had 5,000 people in Johannesburg at a success summit I was uh, starting off a few years ago. And I, I asked how many would like to be financially independent. The place roared. Everybody put their hand up. You know, it was just a roar. I said, how many of you are financially independent where your passive income exceeds your active income and you don't ever have to work again in a day in your life and you do it because you love to work? Seven hands were remaining. <laughs> out of 5,000. So that's less than 1%. Wow. And wow. When, I, when I looked out there and I said, well, okay, let's get down to what's the real reason here. And I explained to them that they have a hierarchy of values. And then I made them do their values. And you were uh, people were blown away, blown away by the realization that wealth building wasn't in their top four values. Wow. And they said and fantasized about it, but people don't know the difference between their fantasies and their reality sometimes. So I, I try to get as objective as I can. And then I show them, and unless we shift those values, financial independence is not ever gonna be part of your life. We have to shift the values. And I showed them how to shift it because if they don't have a value on money, money circulates through the economy from those who value at least to those who value at most. So if a person has a low value on wealth building, but they have a high value on consumable items and clothes, the second they get money, they buy beautiful clothes. The person that then receives the money from the clothes, they may have a high value on socializing. And the people that then socialize go on trips to places. And the people that own the hotels, they may have a high value on, on maybe luxury and having nice cars. And then when they buy the car, the person who owns the car may have a value on having a condo. And the person that owns the condo may have a value on wealth building. 
And so what happens is now the person that owns the actual mortar and bricks and actually gets uh, rent and, and sells uh, condominiums and does property development, now they have wealth building. And the money ins- eventually hands up in their hand. And everybody else just keeps buying things while the person that actually has wealth building buys assets. The majority of listeners are entrepreneurs that if you ask them, I'm sure would say they value wealth accumulation and being successful. Except having studied human behavior so extensively, what would you say is the difference between an entrepreneur who actually succeeds and one who fails? Well, first of all, I'm in front of a lot of entrepreneurs weekly, daily. And um, a lot of them are saying what they want, but that's not what their life demonstrates. I mean, I I know a guy that worked 22 years as an entrepreneur and no matter what he did, he couldn't get ahead financially because he didn't have a value on it. He didn't structure his, he didn't have automated savings and investments that automated, you know, just automatically were done electronically. So he kept waiting to get ahead. And whenever there was an extra, then he'd try to do it. Then it would go behind and then he would blow it and use that money. And he had no real value on it. He had a value on serving people. He had a value on having a business. He had a value on socializing and a value on nice houses and nice clothes and nice uh, cars. But the real truth, he didn't have a value on asset accumulation where it's passively working for him. And until he did, 22 years has gone by. And he keeps thinking, what am I doing wrong? Why can't I get ahead financially? But he didn't really have a value on it. I sat him down and we got him aware of what was going on. We shifted his values. He's accumulated $300,000 in six months, in six months, once we shifted the values. So it has nothing to do with what you've been through. It has everything to do with what your values are. Now, a lot of entrepreneurs go out there with a fantasy, with an idea that they think they know the solution to solving everybody's problems. And they don't actually go out and find out what people are asking for, needing, or wanting. And they're not meeting market needs. And they struggle to try to sell something that they believe in, but nobody else understands the purpose of. So you have to make sure that you're not narcissistic projecting assumptions onto the market or altruistically sacrificing your life to try to feed the market. But to find something with equity, something that is uh, you would love to do that you can't wait to get up in the morning and do, and something that people are absolutely wanting. Now you have a niche that allows you to excel. And when an entrepreneur is is stable enough to be honest with themselves about what that market is, what it's really wanting, and then meeting that need and doing something that they can't wait to deliver. Now you've got a niche that makes them rich. Okay, this is really fascinating. So I saw in one of your recent blogs that you think anyone can be an entrepreneur. Do you literally mean anyone and everyone has it in them to be a successful entrepreneur if they get these values right? Well, every human being has a desire to make a contribution, make a difference. Whether I'm in a prison system speaking to a thousand inmates in maximum security prison, or I'm speaking to leaders and fields, I've not met one person that doesn't want to make a difference. But finding out what the, the reason why leaders emerge is because they have higher degrees of congruency between what they say they want and what they actually want. Because when they set goals that are congruent with their highest values, they wake up their executive center which is involved in inspired vision, strategic planning, executing plans and self-governance. And they end up building momentum and catalyzing, you know, a consistent expansion of space and time horizons and vision and clarity. And they're willing to do the work because they don't, they have a spontaneity, a desire to want to do what it is that they do. That is available to every human being that gets congruent. But the majority of people, 99% of the population, don't know what their values are bang their head against the walls, comparing themselves to others, living in the shadows of others, 
envying and imitating others, distracting themselves with what's really important, deluding their potential, self-depreciating themselves, wondering why they can't get ahead. And then as a result of it, out of security, they go and get a job and try to make it ends meet because they haven't cared enough about humanity to find out what humanity is needing and cared enough about themselves to find out what's really highest on their values objectively and then find where those overlap and niche and then go for it and target that. There's a there's an entrepreneur and a leader in everyone. I, I, I was down in Trinidad speaking to the government there and uh, they were talking about how do we maximize leaders, true authentic leaders and I explained them and I trained them and it's amazing the difference of what's happened in that as a result of it. So I'm, I'm absolutely certain that it's inherent in every human being, but it's going to be dormant in most people because most people conform and try to fit in instead of stand out. They're worried about rejection. They're basically envying other people, making external collective heroes instead of allowing themselves to be the individual hero. And they aren't being congruent with what they value most because they don't even know what they are. So it sounds like the bulk majority of us seem to have this false illusion going on of what our values are. And it's holding us back in a number of ways. Of course, in this show, we're talking about entrepreneurship and success. So it's holding us back. That, and the common thread that I keep hearing you say is that when one shifts their values, when one finally shifts their values to alignment, that's when everything starts to happen to them. So the big question is, how does one do this? Well, it's not just shifting values. It's either you have two ways of fulfillment in life. Setting goals that are objectives, not subjectives, but objectives, which are balanced in alignment congruently with what you value most, or shift your values to match the goals that you say you want. But if there's no congruency between the goals and the value, highest values, things aren't going to happen. You're going to end up having this internal conflict. So it's not just one. It's not just changing values to match goals. It's also changing goals to match values in some cases. Because many people have fantasies are gonna do something, they don't have the values that will lead them there. So if a person says, okay, I, 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 I've been working for 30 years, I really don't have any wealth to show for it. Uh, can you shift my values to increase the probability of wealth, for instance? <laughs> I said, absolutely. But uh, we have to look at, we first what we do is we take the most common action steps that are found in wealth producing individuals and there are action steps that have proven consistently to create wealth. I've accumulated them, I've listed them, I know what they are, and I, that's why I've accumulated wealth in my life. And then what you do is you take those action steps that are highest priority actions that have helped produce you know, productivity and wealth, and you link that to what you value currently. And then you stack up general benefits and keep stacking up benefits of doing those actions until the advantages of doing those are greater than the advantage of doing the options that you're currently doing. Until there's more advantage and disadvantage, your brain won't move in that direction. So you have to stack them up. And I sometimes stack up 200 benefits of new doing the new actions. And I don't stop until I see a change in behavior. And I've, I've been amazed, I've been paid to shift values to help people become wealthy or to have relationships or to be an entrepreneur or whatever. And then there's there's absolutely certainty that that can be done. There's a science to it and it and it works. But most people just write a couple answers down and they, okay, I'm just gonna decide to do this. And they don't have the shift in values to make them act on it. So it's about a shift of values and it's not something that happens with just one small little statement, I'm now gonna do it. It takes a series of neuroplastically altering glial cell changing 
uh, brain responses in the brain to get you to see things from a new perspective and take actions accordingly. But if they do the work, anyone can do this. Is that right? I have yet to find somebody that can't shift their values. I, I, I get paid to do that for people around the world and uh, have yet to see one that can't be done. This is fascinating. Okay, so speaking of values, many people say they value money, they value wealth. I'm curious, somebody who is so well studied as yourself, how do you view money and wealth? Well, I, I'm glad you asked that because that's a, I wrote a book called How to Make One Hell of a Profit and Still Get to Heaven to help people break through the morality illusions about money. But I'll first state that money is really credit. But stop and think about this. The, the most graced, most inspired, most in spiritual awareness a person has in a state of grace and love and appreciation for life. That's the, that's the highest you know, state we have spiritually. But now let's stop and think. That's the same state as it takes to become master of money. Because if you pride, if you go into a state of pride and you exaggerate yourself over others and minimize others, you tend to project your values onto them and try to get them to live in your values. Imagine an entrepreneur that thinks they know better than the marketplace about what the world needs, goes out there with this little widget and goes, projects it onto society, but it doesn't match the needs and then struggles marketing it, promoting it because nobody cares. They're not put in the values of the individuals they're buying. That ends up undermining business as an entrepreneur. At the same time, they can minimize themselves and not have pride, but have shame. And which will, and as a result of the shame, usual compensation for it is altruistic behavior, where they sacrifice for other people, minimize themselves, try to give deals, shorten and lower their prices to make some sort of sale. Both of those are self-defeating and non-sustainable. It's only in a state of equity where you and the customer are equal, and you're not exaggerating you over them or them over you, and you're trying to find what their highest value is, and you're trying to deliver what is highest on your value, so you can't wait to deliver it, and they can't wait to get it. The mastery of that is also a state of equanimity within mind, because you're neither proud nor ashamed, and you're neither infatuated or resentful. You're in a state of grace. You're grateful for doing it. You have a fair, sustainable transaction, and that's what builds businesses. So spirituality and materiality are not separate entities. They're one and the same thing once we put it into context. That is amazing. So it's not until we're in this state of equity that we can really generate sustainable wealth. Is that right? That's it. Because that's when other worth and self-worth join to build net worth. Hubert Hell Bancroft in his book, The Great Book of Wealth, just said that there were three things common to the wealthiest people. First, he said that there, you have to have your spirituality, materiality join. And he's not talking about religion. Spirituality is what inspires you. If you're not inspired by delivering service to vast numbers of people, don't expect to be wealthy. That was one of the keys to the wealth building is that they felt by divine providence and human sovereignty that they were destined to serve vast numbers of people. At the same time, they had a by a divine providence and human sovereignty, a desire to raise the standard and experience the highest standards and the highest, finest things in the world. Not because of ego, not because of show off, not because of any of those things, but because by investing in inspiration and not rescuing desperation, you raise the standard for everyone in society and you give incentive for people to get greater quality, more effective and efficient productivity. And the third thing he found was that people had transcended the moralities of good and evil and money. If money is perceived as good and you seek it greedily, or you think it's bad and you're trying to avoid it, you won't build wealth. 
You only build wealth when you understand that you're here to serve vast numbers of people. You do it with fair exchange and you do it in something you can't wait to get up in the morning and do. So you're congruent. So you have this sustainability and the energy and the vitality to go and do something extraordinary to build momentum and build a brand. My mind is blown right now. I wish I wish you could literally see me on the other end here right now. I'm absolutely loving this. So the tagline for this show is, when good people make good money, they do great things. Do you think this is inherently true of humanity? Yes. If we define good as somebody who's congruent, if we limit it to an animal morality of that which is uh, keeping us in survival, no. There's different levels of morality. The highest morality is grace. Thank you. The lowest morality is black and white, you know, uh, good and evil. So uh, good in the sense as as the eudaimonic good, uh, not the hedonistic good that uh, Aristotle was referring to, yes. But I, I'm not good in the sense of good, like a morally good person. Because a person who's congruent will do what it takes to serve people. And there will be people out there with the opposite set of values that will like and dislike it. You know, you're not going to be a master of anything if you can't embrace your own hero and villain, your own, um, because out there in the world, there's a complete complementary opposite set of values. So whatever you're dedicated, there's people that are similar to that dedicated. There's also people opposite trying to dedicate to the opposite system. So no matter what you do, you're going to have people support and challenge you, and they're going to like and dislike you, and they're going to label you hero and villain. When a person can be go beyond the opinions of others and do something that's inspiring, that serves other people, regardless of their moral perspective on it, now you've mastered the game. Absolutely incredible. I heard you teach once, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, so I apologize, but when you're impoverished, you aren't really helping humanity. Did I get that right? And can you expand on this for us? Well, what I'm really saying, I, I was speaking at a church one time, and I said, if you're impoverished and you're poor, it's because you're not caring about humanity. Because ah. you cared about humanity, you would find what humanity needs, other people need. And then directly or indirectly, you find a way of providing it effectively and efficiently more than somebody competitively. If you did, then you go out and there's no limit on the opportunity to serve and be served economically. There's no lack of money in the world. There's simply people who are unwilling to go out and make a difference in other people's lives and meet the needs of others. And when they do, they are willing to pay. And there's, there's an abundance out there for people that care about humanity. So if you're focusing on your own problems and you're not focusing on solving global problems, don't expect to be vastly fortunate. I've asked people in every country around the world that I've been in uh, at seminars, I've said, how many of you ever used Microsoft Windows? And almost every hand goes up. I mean, 99%. I said, now you know why he's a billionaire. Any country I go to, people put their hands up and they value and appreciate and have used Microsoft Windows. So if we go out and we care enough to find out what are the needs of the vast number of people in the world, and provide a way of solving those needs, that's the way to become vastly fortunate. That's the entrepreneur. Absolutely incredible. You know, we talk a lot about gratitude. We talk a lot about generosity on the show. And I've got two questions around it for you. The first one is, you said earlier, you have over 4,000 pages recorded of gratitude. So what role has gratitude played in your life? It's almost 4,700 now. And I, I keep a record. Believe it or not, you're already in there today. I just typed it in before we got on that I had the opportunity to do this podcast, this webinar, this presentation uh, with you. And so I document every single thing I get to do. I was yesterday with an amazing man named Glenn Plaskin, who is the leading uh, writer for the biographies of celebrities in the world. And we were talking about a book and he, and he basically was, he, he sat and he looked at and he saw this 4,700 page document. He was just sitting there and he goes, my God, 
This is the largest collection of gratitudes I've ever seen in my life. And it's a document of every single day, the things I get to do, the people I get to meet, the places I get to go, the opportunities that happen, um, the thank you letters I've received, the achievements, the metrics. Uh, it, it's an ongoing diary, you might say, or a log of everything that I'm blessed by. Because I, I realized from my mom when I was four years old, she said, be sure to count your blessings because those that are grateful for what they got, they get more to be grateful for. So I make it a ritual. I've been doing this for many, many years and it continues to grow on a daily basis. So do you reflect back through the pages often or is it the mere exercise of recording your gratitude in Both. each moment? Both. I, I, there's nothing more inspiring than my book. I, I call it the state of my mission book and it's 24 volumes and it's 4,000, nearly 70 pages, 700 pages. And it is the most inspiring book in my life because it's, it's all the things I've been grateful for that I've gotten to do. And I've had a very amazing life as a result of following the principles that I'm trying to share with people. Absolutely. And all over that. The other thing we talk a lot about here is generosity. So what role has generosity played in your success? Well, generosity has many meanings to it. Rescuing desperation and compensating for your own shame and guilt to the past uh, is different than true generosity. Ooh. So I'd like to distinct that. Please do. Uh, so let's say you're in a transaction with somebody and you've contracted to do a service for a certain fee. And let's say you deliver that service and you feel you've done that service and even more. And they renege on the fee and they, they shortchange you. As a result of that, you're probably gonna get narcissistic, get a little bit demanding and say, look, you, gotta, you owe me some money and you'll get narcissistic. On the other hand, you might do that transaction, deliver the service, they may have paid for it, but you, you feel that you really didn't deliver as much as you hoped. You didn't give the service that you really intended. And you might feel kind of guilty or shamed about it. And now you go altruistic. So you get altruistic as a compensation for shame and guilt of the past with a hidden agenda of the future, or you get uh, narcissistic for compensation for pride and self-righteous of the past with a hidden agenda of the future. The hidden agenda of the future of the narcissist is philanthropy to get back. The hidden agenda of the altruist is social welfare. One's capitalistic, one's socialistic. And what's interesting is our brain is trying to get a fair exchange and not try to get something for nothing narcissistically or give something for nothing altruistically. So generosity has to be done where it doesn't rob people of dignity, accountability, responsibility, and productivity, as the Rockefeller said. It has to do something that actually builds culture. And just giving and rescuing people and giving something because of your own shame and guilt of the past or and something that doesn't really build that individual for their own autonomy and self-reliance will actually backfire. That happens around the world and adds to increased corruption and in increased uh, dependency and expectation, et cetera. So generosity, as some great wealthy people have said, it's sometimes more difficult to learn how to be generous than it is to build wealth because you now have to make sure you don't rob people of culture and development of their own self-worth. You have to make sure that there's enough incentive to keep catalyzing their own maturity and growth and productivity, but not rescue people. And that's a science. It's a very, very fine line that most people think just giving people money is going to be somehow generous, but that actually can rob people of incentive, dignity, accountability, productivity, and, and they can set them up for resentment and entitlement and many other things if it's not done properly. This is fascinating. I'm sure a lot of people have fallen into that category. Do you have any favorite moments or a demonstration you could share where you struck this balance appropriately so that it was true generosity? Well, anytime you're, and when I educate, 
if I hold people accountable to do the things that they say they're going to do, and I give them great information, uh, it can be generous if they're basically going out and doing something extraordinary with their life. I was just doing an interview five minutes before your interview here uh, with a lady that was here, right here live. And she said, you know, I read one of your books. I attended one of your programs. I've never told you what's happened, but my life has done extraordinary things as a result of it. Okay, now, I didn't even know, I didn't know what I did. I had no idea that this impact was there, but in the interview, I found this out. So if you're doing something like a seed of a mighty oak, one seed can create a tree, a tree that then creates a million acorns. So the way you know your generosity is that it's perpetuating something more in your life than what you started with. It's perpetuating a growth, a productivity in society. So I think my, my greatest generosity occurs with my depth of research and trying to share with people information that allows them to expand their, their, their awareness and potential and do something with their life. And that can be done with fair exchange and still be generous. Dr. Martin, this is blowing my mind. It's really making me rethink some of my acts of generosity. And you know, we're always a work in progress. And so I feel like I'm growing just by doing this interview. Speaking of doing this interview, I'm, I'm curious, somebody with as much experience as yourself, what should people like myself ask you that we typically don't ask? Ask me? Yeah. I don't know. It's whatever is meaningful to you at the time is what you'll probably ask. Um, I don't know. It's, it's whatever is inspiring to you. What would be meaningful to you? That's what I would ask. It's fascinating because I, you know, I look at the, the vast amount uh, the, of wealth of knowledge that you have. And I always feel like individuals like myself that do interviews, you know, there, there's always a common thread of something that we should be asking you a, a gift or a nugget for the world or something like that, that we typically don't ask. But you're saying it's really just as simple as whatever's important to us in the moment. That's what we should be asking. Well, I don't live by shoulds and ought tos and supposed tos and got tos and have tos and must, which is a deontological duty by subordinating to tradition, convention of the past. Be an innovator and think inspiredly in that moment. What is it that would actually do the greatest amount of service for the greatest number of people at this moment? And ask, what would I, how would I go in to fulfill that? Mm -hmm. I think it's Bill Gates that does that on a daily basis. He asks himself a question. What is the greatest service I can do today with the resources I have access to today? And what's the highest priority action to fulfill that? Wow. I mean, you if, live if, life we by that. With high, if we fill our day with high priority actions and inspire us, it doesn't fill up with low priority distractions that don't. And if we go and pursue challenges that inspire us, it doesn't fill up with challenges that don't. The key is to get that one thing, as Gary Keller says, get that one thing that's the highest priority thing and stick to that and build momentum doing that. And it, catalytically, that is like an enzyme reaction or a nuclear physics reaction that causes tremendous transformation. Wow. I, I feel like I've gotten such a vast education just in this quick 40 minutes that we've been together. Where can we best follow you and tap into everything that you're teaching? Well, the best thing to do is just simply go to my website, drdmartini.com. There is a, it's an educational experience. There's hundreds of YouTube videos and interviews and magazine articles and newspapers. There's, I've done about 8,000 interviews and there's tons of them on there. And, uh, and plus there's also events around the world they can attend and there's, there's live products and things that people can get and online. And so just going to the website is probably the best thing to do. We'll make sure we put a link to that in the show notes. So one of the very last questions that I always ask every single guest is this. Can you state a reason why people should be unapologetic about their pursuit of success? Well, 
at any time, Albert Einstein said the greatest teacher is exemplification. And the second you, because of mirror neurons and mimicking of other people, the second you go and do something extraordinary with your life, you give permission for other people to do it. I don't want them mimicking you and being you. I want them mimicking actions of self-reliance and self-governance and, and clarity. But, but by you doing it and you doing something particularly entrepreneurial, you know, the entrepreneur is one of the most greatest contributions to the planet there is because what they do is they go out and they do something that's filling the needs of other people. They're giving job opportunities, which helps raise families and contributes to taxes and helps build society. And they're teaching people through exemplification how to live an inspired life. And so that is a ripple effect that can go down the line that can cause secondary and tertiary and quaternary and pentenary reactions in a, in a social cultural way that's very profound. So giving yourself permission to be an entrepreneur that's inspired by some contribution on the planet and, and giving yourself permission to create a legacy that leaves some immortal effect is one of the greatest contributions we can do in the world. That's a spiritual quest that leaves a material impact on planet Earth, a celestial terrestrial combination. And I think that that's uh, something we all have access to doing if we dig inside and look at what's truly most important that we'd love to do that makes a contribution and then going and caring enough to look at what is the biggest search that people are looking for in the world and what is the needs and how do we provide a need. That is so rewarding to go out and fill great needs to great numbers of people. Wow, I, I, number one, I agree. Number two, that is one of the best answers ever. It gives permission when we live, it, live out our life that way. It gives permission and demonstration for everyone else to do the same thing. And that is a massive form of contribution. Dr. Martini, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. I know how valuable your time and your expertise is. And thank you for just leading the way and for inspiring me to live at a high level and everybody else that you come in contact with. Well, thank you. And, and uh, thank you for giving me an opportunity to help bring my message out to, to people because, uh, you know, what else is there? There's, there's nothing more inspiring than getting to do what you love to do every day. And I love researching, writing, traveling, and teaching, and you just help me do it. So thank you. Well, it is beyond my pleasure and my privilege. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.